All right, tonight's might be a little bit on the shorter side, but we'll see how things go. Chapter 32, Coppers, Cobblers, and Crowds. Oh, sorry, I should introduce everything. Welcome back to Books of Bedtime. I'm Tyler. We are continuing on with The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Please go support the author, and uh, it's, it's definitely worth owning his books. All right. Um... Also, um, if you are enjoying my podcast, Books of Bedtime, um, please feel free to uh, support this uh, podcast. There should be a link where you can go support it. Um, if not, it is... Uh, well, uh, actually, what is the link? One second. Okay, the uh, best way to support me is to go to buymeacoffee.com slash TylerTheDM. Uh, that's T-Y-L-E-R-T-H-E-D-M, as in Dungeon Master. I play Dungeons and Dragons. So, uh, yeah, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please um, consider supporting me there. Um, I've been thinking about maybe doing a Patreon. Um, I could release episodes maybe a, a week in advance when I start my next book. Um, or I could even have two books going simultaneously. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to get some feedback on there. Um, if you go and support the podcast on Buy Me A Coffee, uh, you can leave a note and you can leave your opinion there. All right. Um, let's see. Chapter 32. Coppers, Cobblers, and Crowds It was about an hour before noon when I stepped out onto the street. The sun was out and the cobblestones were warm beneath my feet. Oh, that, that rhymed. Uh, as the noise of the market rose to an irregular hum around me, I tried to enjoy the pleasant sensation of having a full belly and a clean body. But there was a vague unease in the pit of my stomach, like the feeling you get when someone's staring at the back of your head. It followed me until my instincts got the better of me, and I slipped into a side alley quick as a fish. As soon as I pressed against the wall, waiting, the feeling faded. After a few minutes, I began to feel foolish. I trusted my instincts, but they gave false alarms every now and again. I waited a few more minutes just to be sure, then moved back onto the street. The feeling of vague unease returned almost immediately. I ignored it while trying to find out where it was coming from, but after five minutes I lost my nerve and turned onto a side street watching the crowd to see who was following me. No one. It took a nerve-wracking half-hour and two more alleys before I finally figured out what it was. It felt strange to be walking with the crowd. Over the last couple of years, crowds have become a part of the scenery of the city to me. I might use a crowd to hide from a guard or a storekeeper. I might move through a crowd to get where I was going. I might even be going in the same direction as the crowd, but I was never a part of it. I was so used to being ignored. I almost ran from the first merchant who tried to sell me something. Once I knew what was bothering me, the greater part of my uneasiness left. Fear tends to come from ignorance. Once I knew what the problem was, it was just a problem, nothing to fear. 
as I've mentioned, Tarbine has two main sections, Hillside and Waterside. Waterside was poor, Hillside was rich, Waterside stank, Hillside was clean, Waterside had thieves, Hillside had bankers. I'm sorry, burglars. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. Uh, I have already told the story of my one ill-auspiced venture, Hillside, so perhaps you will understand why, when the crowd in front of me happened to part for a moment, I saw what I was looking for, a member of the guard. I ducked through the nearest door, my heart pounding. I spent a moment reminding myself that I wasn't the same filthy little urchin who'd been beaten years ago. I was well-dressed and clean. I looked like I belonged here, but old habits die slow deaths. I fought to control a deep red anger, but couldn't tell if I was angry at myself, the guard, or the world in general. Uh, probably a little of each. Be right with you, came a cheerful voice from a curtained doorway. I looked around the shop. Light from the front window fell across a crowded workbench and dozens of shelved pairs of shoes. It scan calls at the worst times. Okay. Um, let's see. I decided I could have picked a worse store to wander into. Let me guess, came the voice again from the back. A grandfather gray man. A, a grandfather gray man emerged from behind the curtain carrying a long piece of leather. He was short and stooped, but his face smiled at me through his wrinkles. You need shoes. He smiled timidly as if the joke was a pair of old boots that had worn out long ago, but were too comfortable to give up. He looked down at my feet. I looked too, in spite of myself. I was barefoot, of course. I hadn't had shoes for so long that I never even thought about them anymore. At least, not during the summer. In the winter, I dreamed of shoes. I looked up. The old man's eyes were dancing, as if he couldn't decide whether laughing would cost him his cuffs tomorrow or not. I guess I need shoes, I admitted. He laughed and guided me into a seat, measuring my bare feet with his hands. Thankfully, the streets were dry, so my feet were merely dusty from the cobblestones. If there had been rain, they would have been embarrassingly filthy. Let's see what you like, and if I have anything uh, of a size for you. If not, I can make or change a pair of, to fit you in an hour or two. So, uh, what would you be wanting shoes for? Walking? Dancing? Riding? He leaned back on his stool and grabbed a pair off a shelf behind him. Walking. thought so. He deftly rolled a pair of stockings onto my feet, as if all his customers came in barefoot. He tucked my feet into a pair of something black with buckles. How's those feel? Put a little weight on to make sure. I... They're tight, I thought so. Nothing more annoying than a shoe that pinches. He stripped me out of them, and into another pair, quick as a whip. How about these? They were a deep purple made of velvet or felt. They not quite your, what you're looking for, and don't blame you, really. Wear out terrible fast. Nice color, though. Good for chasing the ladies. He patted a new pair onto my feet. How about these? They were a simple brown leather, and fit like he'd measured my feet before he'd made them. I pressed my foot to the ground, and it hugged me. I had forgotten how wonderful a good shoe can feel. How much? I asked apprehensively. Instead of answering, he stood, and started searching the shelves with his eyes. 
You can tell a lot about a person by their feet, he mused. Some men come in here, smiling and laughing, shoes all clean and brushed, socks all powdered up, but when the shoes are off, their feet smell just fearsome. Those are the people that hide things. They've got bad-smelling secrets, and they try to hide them just like they try to hide their feet. He turned to look at me. It never works, though. Only way to stop your feet from smelling is to let them air out a bit. Could be the same with thing with secrets. I don't know about that, though. I just know about shoes. He began to look through the clutter of his workbench. Some of these young men from the court come in, fanning their faces and moaning about the latest tragedy, but their feet are so pink and soft. You know they've never walked anywhere on their own. You know they've never really been hurt. He finally found what he was looking for, holding up a pair of shoes similar to the pair I wore. Here we go. These were my Jacobs when he was your age. He sat on his stool and unlaced the pair of shoes I was wearing. Now you, he continued, have old soles for a boy so young. Scars, calluses. Feet like these could run barefoot all day on stone and not need shoes. A boy your age only gets these feet one way. He looked at me, making it a question. I nodded. He smiled and lay a hand on my shoulder. How do they feel? I stood up to test them. If anything, they were more comfortable than the newer pair for being a little broken in. Now this pair, he waved the shoes he held, are new. They haven't been walked a mile, and for new shoes like these I charge a talent. Maybe a talent in two, he pointed at my feet. Those shoes, on the other hand, are used, and I don't sell used shoes. He turned his back on me and started to tidy his workbench rather aimlessly, humming to himself. It took me a second to recognize the tune. Leave the town, Tinker. I knew what he was trying. I knew that he was trying to do me a favor, and a few days ago I would have jumped at the opportunity for free shoes, but for some reason I didn't feel right about it. I quietly gathered up my things and left a pair of copper jots on his stool before I left. Why? Because pride is a strange thing, and because generosity deserves generosity in return. But mostly because it felt like the right thing to do, and that is reason enough. Four days, six days if raining, Rowant was the third wagoneer I'd asked about going north to Imre, the town nearest the university. He was a thick-bodied, sealdish man, with a fierce black beard that hid most of his face. He turned away and barked curses in Siaru. Goodness. So many difficult words here. Let me just make sure I've got that correct. Is that even in here? It is. And... And I even pronounced it right. Siaru. At a man loading a wagon with bolts of cloth. When he spoke his native language, he sounded like an angry rock slide. His rough voice lowered to a rumble as he turned back to me. Two copper jots, not pennies. You can ride in a wagon if there is space. You can sleep underneath at night if you want. You can eat in the evening with us. Lunch is just bread. If a wagon gets stuck... You help push. There was another pause while he shouted at the men. 
There were three wagons being packed with trade goods, while the fourth was achingly familiar. One of the wheeled houses I had spent most of my early life riding. Ronce's wife, Reta, sat in the front of that wagon. Her mien wavered from severe uh, when she watched the men loading the wagons to smiling when she spoke with a girl standing nearby. I assumed the girl was a passenger like myself. She was my age, perhaps a year older, but a year makes a great deal of difference at that time of life. The tall, or tail, the tail, have a saying about children our age, the boy grows upward, but the girl grows up. She was dressed practically for traveling, pants and shirt, and was just young enough for it not to seem improper. Her bearing was such that if she had been a year older, I would have been forced to see her as a lady. As it was, when she spoke with Reta, she moved back and forth between a genteel grace and a childlike exuberance. She had long, dark hair, and simply said, she was beautiful. It had been a long time since I had seen anything beautiful. Rowant followed my gaze and continued, everyone helps set camp at night. Everyone helps. Everyone takes a turn watching. You fall asleep during your watch, you get left behind. You eat with us, whatever my wife cooks. You complain, you get left behind. You walk too slow, you get left behind. You bother the girl. He ran a hand through his thick, dark beard. Bad things happen. Hoping to turn his thoughts in a different direction, I spoke up. When will the wagons be done loading? Two hours he said with a grim certainty, as if defying the workers to contradict him. One of the men stood upright, atop a wagon, shading his eyes with a hand. He called out, raising his voice over the sound of horses, wagons, and men that filled the square. Don't let him scare you off, kid. He's a decent enough after all that growling. Rowan pointed a stern finger, and the man turned back to his work. I hardly needed to be convinced. A man who travels with his wife is usually to be trusted. Besides, the price was fair, and he was leaving today. I took this opportunity to pull a pair of jots from my purse and hold them out to Rowan. He turned to me. Two hours. He held up thick fingers to make his point. You are late, you get left behind. I nodded solemnly. Ryusa tu kielos Aisha tua. Thank you for bringing me close to your family. Rowan's great shaggy eyebrows went up. He recovered quickly and gave a quick nod that was almost a small bow. I looked around the square, trying to get my bearings. Someone's full of surprises. I turned around to see the worker, who had shouted to me from the wagon. He held out his hand. Derek. I shook his hand, feeling awkward. It had been so long since I had made simple conversation with, with someone that I felt strange and hesitant. Gvoth. Derek put his hands behind him and stretched his back with a grimace. He stood head and shoulders taller than me, twenty or so, tall and blonde. Yeah, okay, that's the second time someone's he's mentioned that uh, someone is taller than him. At fifteen... I'm sure he's still growing, probably going through a growth spurt at the moment, but um, it's most likely that he has grown a little more slowly in Tarbine due to a bit of malnutrition. Anyway, okay, uh, you gave Rowan a bit of a turn there. 
Where did you learn to speak Siaru? An arcanist taught me a little, I explained. I watched as Ront went to speak to his wife. The dark-haired girl looked in my direction and smiled. I looked away, not knowing what to make of it. He shrugged. I'll leave you to fetch your things, then. Ront's all growl and not much gruff, but he won't wait once the wagons are packed. I nodded, even though my things were non-existent. I did have a little shopping to do. They say you can find anything in Tarbin if you have enough money. For the most part, they are right. I made my way down the stairs to Trappist's ba uh, basement. It felt strange to make the trip wearing shoes. I was used to the cool damp of stone underfoot when I came to pay a visit. As I made my way down the short hallway, a boy in rags emerged from the inner rooms holding a small winter apple. He pulled up short when he saw me, then scowled, his eyes narrow and suspicious. Looking down, he brushed roughly past me. Without even thinking about it, I slapped his hand away from my purse and turned to look at him, too stunned for words. He bolted outside, leaving me confused and disturbed. We never stole from each other here. Out on the streets, it was everyone for themselves, but Trappist's basement was the closest thing to a sanctuary we had, like a church. None of us would risk spoiling that. I took the last few steps into the main room and was relieved to see that everything else seemed normal. Trappist wasn't there probably off collecting charity to help him care for his children. There were six cots, all full, and more children lying on the floor. Several grubby urchins stood around a bushel basket on the table, clutching winter apples. They turned to stare at me, their expressions flinty and spiteful. It dawned on me then. None of them recognized me. Clean and well-dressed, I looked like some regular boy come wandering in. I didn't belong. Just then, Trappist came back, carrying several flat loaves of bread under one arm and squalling, and a squalling child under the other. Ari, he called to one of the boys standing near the bushel basket, come help. We've got a new visitor, and she needs changing. The boy hurried over and took the child out of Trappist's arms. He laid the bread on the table next to the bushel basket, and all the children's eyes fixed on him attentively. My stomach went sour. Trappist hadn't even looked at me. What if he didn't recognize me? What if he told me to leave? I didn't know if I could cope with that. I began to edge toward the door. Trappist pointed. Let's see. Trappist pointed to the children one at a time. Let me see. David, you empty and scrub the drinking barrel. It's getting brackish. When he's done, Nathan can fill it from the pump. Can I take twice? Nathan said. I need some for my brother. Your brother can come for his own bread, Trappist said gently, then looked more closely at the boy, sensing something. Is he hurt? Nathan nodded, looking at the floor. Trappist laid a hand on the boy's shoulder. Bring him down. We'll see to him. It's his leg, Nathan blurted, seeming close to tears. It's all hot, and he can't walk. Trappist nodded and gestured to the next child. Jen, you help Nathan bring his brother back. They hurried out. Tam, since Nathan's gone, you carry the water instead. Kvoth, you run for soap. He held out a halfpenny. Go to Marna's in the wash. You'll get better from her if you tell her who it's for. I felt a sudden lump form in my throat. He knew me. I can't hope to explain to you how much of a relief it was. Trappist was the closest thing I had to a family. The thought of him not knowing me had been horrifying. 
I don't have time to run an errand, Trappus, I said hesitantly. I'm leaving. I'm heading inland to Imre. Let me just... Okay. Another pronunciation guide thing. So many, so many different words. I love that, man. It, it adds great flavor, and it's good that he only adds names at, of places and people that are that are difficult like this or of languages and things like that and not like renaming hours or days or something sim like silly like that that doesn't need to be renamed and is only just going to cause problems oh so the, okay there are two possible pronunciations imri or imre hmm. I think I'll say Imre. Imre? Imre? Imre. Imre. Okay, maybe I'll say Imre. I'll decide later. Ah, okay, whatever. Are you then? He asked, then paused and gave me a second closer look. Well then, I guess you are. Of course. Trappist never saw the clothes, only the child inside them. I stopped by to let you know where my things are. On the roof of the candle works, there's a place where three roofs meet. There are some things there, a blanket, a bottle. I don't need any of it anymore. It's a good place to sleep in if anyone needs one. Dry. No one goes there. That's kind of you. I'll send one of the boys round, Trappist said. Come here. He came forward and gathered me into a clumsy hug. His beard tickling the side of my face. I'm always glad to see one of you get away, he said softly to me. I know you'll do just fine for yourself, but you can always come back if you need to. One of the girls on a nearby cot began to thrash and moan. Trappist pulled away from me and turned to look. What, what? he said as he hurried over to tend to her, his bare feet slapping on the floor. What, what? Hush, hush. 33. A Sea of Stars I returned to Drover's lot with a travel sack swinging by one shoulder. It held a change of clothes, a loaf of trail bread, some jerked meat, a skin of water, needle and thread, flint and steel, pens and ink. In short, everything an intelligent person takes on a trip in the event they might need it. However, my proudest acquisition was a dark blue cloak, that I had bought off a fripper's cart for only three jots. It was warm, clean, and unless I missed my guess, only one owner from new. Now let me say this. When you are traveling, a good cloak is worth more than all your other possessions put together. If you've nowhere to sleep, it can be your bed and blanket. It will keep the rain off your back and the sun from your eyes. You can conceal all manner of interesting weaponry beneath it if you are clever and a small assortment if you are not. But beyond all that, two facts remain to recommend a cloak. First, very little is as striking as a well-worn cloak, billowing lightly around you in the breeze. And second, the best cloaks have innumerable little pockets that I have an irrational and overpowering attraction toward. As I have said, this was a good cloak, and it had a number of such pockets. Squirreled away in them I had string and wax, some dried apple, a tinderbox, a marble in a small leather sack, a pouch of salt, hook needle, and gut. I'd made a point of spending all my carefully hoarded commonwealth coin 
keeping my hard-sealedish currency for my, my trip. Pennies spent well enough here in Tarbine, but sealedish money was solid no matter where in the four corners you found yourself. A final flurry of preparation was being made as I arrived. Roant paced around the wagons like a restless animal, checking everything again and again. Rita watched the workers with a stern eye and a quick word for anything that wasn't being done to her satisfaction. I was comfortably ignored until we headed out of the city toward the university. As the miles rolled away, it was as if a great weight slowly fell away from me. I reveled in the feel of the ground through my shoes, the taste of the air, the quiet hush of wind brushing through the spring wheat in the fields. I found myself grinning for no good reason, save that I was happy. We rue are not meant to stay in one place for so long. I took a deep breath and nearly laughed out loud. <sighs> for any of you who have been up into the mountains or out to the sea um, at a nice clean place, you may know the feeling of leaving the city and the stale air there and finding some place rural with fresh air. There's something invigorating about it that just just wakes your soul up and makes you feel good. All right, back to the book. I kept to myself as we traveled, not being used to the company of others. Roant and the mercenaries were willing to leave me alone. Derek joked with me off and on, but generally found me too reserved for his tastes. That left the other passenger, Denna. We didn't speak until the first day's ride was nearly done. I was, sorry, I accidentally skipped down a little bit with my eyes. I was riding with one of the mercenaries, absently peeling the bark from a willow switch. While my fingers worked, I studied the side of her face, admiring the line of her jaw, the curve of her neck into her shoulder. I wondered why she was traveling alone and where she was going. In the middle of my musing, she turned to look in my direction and caught me staring at her. Penny for your thoughts? she asked, brushing at an errant strand of hair. I was wondering what you're doing here, I said half-honestly. Smiling, she held my eyes. Liar. I used an old stage trick to keep myself from blushing, gave my best unconcerned shrug, and looked down at the willow wand I was peeling. I heard her after a few minutes, I heard her return to her conversation with Rita. I found myself strangely disappointed. Ah, yes, young love, as it goes with young men, disappointed when they don't receive the attention and approval of young women. And may I note that young women have no idea, most of them, the power that they hold over the way men view themselves. Anyway. Okay, let's see. After camp was set at dinner and dinner was cooking, I idled around the wagons, examining the knots Roant used to lash his cargo into place. I heard a footfall behind me and turned to see Denna approaching. My stomach rolled over and I took a short breath to compose myself. She stopped about a dozen feet from me. Have you figured it out yet? She asked. Excuse me? Or, excuse me? 
That's better. Why I'm here, she smiled gently. I've been wondering the same thing for most my life, you see. I thought if you had any ideas... She gave me a wry, hopeful look. I shook my head, too uncertain of the situation to find the humor in it. All I've been able to guess is that you're going somewhere. She nodded seriously. That's as much as I've guessed, too. She paused to look at the circle on the, the horizon made around us. The wind caught her hair as she, and she brushed it back again. Do you happen to know where I'm going? I felt a smile begin a slow creep onto my face. It felt odd. I was out of practice, smiling. Don't you know? I have suspicions. Right now I'm thinking Anilin. She rocked onto the edges of her feet, then back to the flats. But I've been wrong before. A silence settled over our conversation. Denna looked down at her hands, fidgeting with a ring on her finger, twisting it. I caught a glimpse of silver and a pale blue stone. Suddenly she dropped her hands to her sides and looked up at me. Where are you going? The university. She arched an eyebrow looking ten years older. So certain, she smiled and was suddenly young again. How does it feel to know where you are going? I couldn't think of a reply, but was saved from the need for one by Retta calling us for supper. Denna and I walked toward the campfire together. The beginning of the next day was spent in a brief awkward courtship. Eager, but not wanting to seem eager. Classic. Uh, I made a slow dance around Denna before finally finding some excuse to spend time with her. Denna, on the other hand, seemed perfectly at ease. We spent the rest of the day as if we were old friends. We joked and told stories. I pointed out the different types of clouds and what they told of the weather to come. She showed me the shapes they held. A rose, a harp, a waterfall. So passed the day. Later, when lots were being drawn to see who had which turn at watch, Denna and I drew the first two shifts. Without discussing it, we shared the four hours of watch together talking softly so as not to wake the others. We sat close by the fire and spent the time watching very little but each other. The third day was much the same. We passed the time pleasantly, not in long conversation, but more often watching the scenery, saying whatever happened to come to our minds. That night we stopped at a wayside inn, where Reta bought fodder for the horses and a few other supplies. Retta retired early with her husband, telling each of us that she had arranged for our dinners and beds with the innkeeper. The former was quite good, bacon and potato soup with fresh bread and butter. The latter was in the stables, but it was still long sight better than what I was used to in Tarbine. The common room smelled of smoke and sweat and spilled beer. I was glad when Denna asked if I wanted to take a walk. Outside was the warm quiet of a windless spring night. We talked as we wended our slow way through the wild bit of forest behind the inn. After a while, we came to a wide clearing circling a pond. 
on the edge of the water were a pair of waystones, their surfaces silver against the black of the sky, the black of the water. One stood upright, a finger pointing to the sky. The other lay flat, extending into the water like a, sh like a short stone pier. No breath of wind disturbed the surface of the water, so as we climbed out onto the fallen stone, the stars reflected themselves in double fashion, as above, so below, as if we were sitting amid a sea of stars. We spoke for hours late into the night. Neither of us mentioned our pasts. I sensed that there were things she would rather not talk about, and by the way she avoided questioning me, I think she guessed the same. We spoke of ourselves instead, of fond imaginings and impossible things. I pointed to the skies and told her the names of stars and constellations. She told me stories about them I had never heard before. My eyes were always returning to Denna. She sat beside me, arms hugging her knees. Her skin was more luminous than the moon, her eyes wider than the sky, deeper than the water, darker than the night. It slowly began to dawn on me that I had been staring at her wordlessly for an impossible amount of time, lost in my thoughts, lost in the sight of her. But her face didn't look offended or amused. It almost looked as if she were studying the lines of my face, almost as if she were waiting. I wanted to take her hand. I wanted to brush her cheek with my fingertips. I wanted to tell her that she was the first beautiful thing I had seen in three years that the sight of her yawning to the back of her hand was enough to drive the breath from me, how I sometimes lost the sense of her words in the sweet fluting of her voice. I wanted to say that if she were with me, then somehow nothing could ever be wrong for me again. In that breathless second, I almost asked her. I felt the question boiling up from my chest. I remember drawing a breath, then hesitating. What could I say? Come away with me? Stay with me? Come to the university? No. Sudden certainty tightened in my chest like a cold fist. What could I ask her? What could I offer? Nothing. Anything I said would sound foolish. A child's fantasy. I closed my mouth and looked across the water, inches away. Denna did the same. I could feel the heat of her. She smelled like road dust and honey and the smell the air holds, seconds before a heavy summer rain. Neither of us spoke. I closed my eyes. The closeness of her was the sweetest, sharpest thing my life had ever known. And that, I think, is where we will stop tonight. Yes, I know, it's only been about half an hour. But that's just such a good place to stop. It had a good feel to it. And so that is where I will leave you tonight. Tune in tomorrow when I return with more of this book for Books at Bedtime. All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs>